Hey guys, it's your guest host Calvin again for another episode. Today we catch up with the founder and CEO of CU Health, Dr. Patrick Oard. CU Health is Australia's first virtual healthcare practice and leading well-being solution provider for businesses. We talk about Pat's lessons through COVID as both an entrepreneur and a doctor. We also discuss how the health of your staff can impact the success of your business and the mindset behind running many ventures and being a family man at the same time. This is one of the most fantastic conversations I've ever had from a person who's definitely one of the most talented all-rounders I've ever met. Enjoy the show. All right, Dr. Pat, have you uh, have you trademarked that name? It's funny you say that. I, um, I've been called Dr. Pat. I've been called the Doc. Uh, I'm I'm contemplating um, building some sort of like keynote page or something with that that name on it. Um, it yeah, I don't mind. Doctor Pat's a good one. I, I feel it's friendly. It's warm. I like Doctor Pat. At Carb, we all refer to you as Doctor Pat. Okay. So you might have to you might have to run with that one. <laughs> um, I'd love to start this conversation off. I mean, you're involved in a lot of different stuff. Uh, I'm very interested in in going into pretty much all of it, but. I'd love to start off with just a blanket kind of overview of, of your, your businesses. Um, okay. So, you know, I started off uh, from a business perspective um, thinking about how to problem solve. So for me, it was, wasn't about, it really wasn't about sort of how do I start a business, commercialize, make money. It was more a frustration of how can I um, solve problems? And then as a result of that business was the best way to do it. So the first business that I um, set up with a colleague of mine, he's actually a cardiologist, um, uh, is a medical education business. So the, the goal there was to help uh, doctors that are on their training program to become specialists, uh, help them improve their skills, their knowledge, pass their exams. Um, so we wrote that content. I, I wrote content for the first course in like 10 years ago now. And then over time, built up a big following. We moved it to digital. So that's medical education. And it became medical education, consulting and events. So now we help manage medical education events. Last night, uh, actually, we ran a great event with about 15 neurologists um, down at Circular Quay. And it really helps because we can tailor the events for the audience the right way rather than a generic event management group. Uh, and I worked directly with the doctors then and, 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 the, and the steering committees and stuff. So that was that side. But that was sort of... Um, if you like a simple business in that there's not much capex, there's not much capital expenditure or outlay, the risk is your time and opportunity cost. Uh, so you're developing content using subject matter expertise and then delivering that to people and that grew over time. Um, the next business that I embarked on uh, was really uh, a more traditional uh, type of business where you've got to, uh, I guess, you know, take a deep breath in, get loans from the bank, uh, so that was to work in medical practice um, environment and build medical practices. So we um, we uh, built a medical practice from scratch in Balmain about six years ago and that evolved. Uh, it was a huge challenge, working capital, asset finance, all of those things you need to start a uh, brick-and-mortar business and then we acquired another general practice. We started to understand how to run them well and look after the team and the doctors. Um, and then as a result of that, when the pandemic hit, we used that skill set to partner with the government and local communities to run respiratory clinics, to do vaccination drives in regional New South Wales. Um, so by that point in time, 
I was working as a neurologist, which is my specialty area. And I guess in that sense, it's not really a business, but you are in, in a sense a business. You're working in hospitals as an employee and you're working in private practice as a contractor. Um, and that has its own skill set. In parallel with that was running the education courses and then building practices. So we had four practices at, um, in that point um, throughout Sydney, uh, North, North Shore, Inner West, um, uh, two in the, three in the Inner West actually at that point in time. And it was a very difficult time, but we learned a lot about um, digital health in that time because we needed to join the dots using technology. So that led to... Uh, the business I work in now and predominantly work in and focus on, it's my number one um, priority in the business world, and that is CU Health. CU Health is a digital health and technology uh, company where um, we run the healthcare and the tech, and effectively it's a virtual healthcare platform. Uh, we offer to people to improve their lives, prevent illness, treat illness, both mental and physical health. And all of the learnings from my life in the other businesses have been poured into this one um, so that we can really make a huge impact on Australia's well-being. So there's obviously a lot that we're, we're going to get into there and I want to dissect pretty much all of it. But I want to start with COVID. You know, you mentioned COVID as a, as a difficult time. You mentioned, you know, the lessons that you kind of took out of it that led you into the, the, the current tech business that you've got. But I also know as a neurologist and as a, as a doctor, you were heavily involved in, in everything that was going on during that period. Tell us a bit about your experience through COVID. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it was an amazing uh, and frightening time because, you know, when you go through medical school, you learn about um, pandemics and the plague and Spanish flu and all of these things, but they seem so historical and abstract. And then when the first case broke out and it was spreading quickly, um, you know, it was just still academic almost. It was just news. Then suddenly I, at the time I was working at a very large hospital um, in Sydney, um, Sydney's largest hospital, and um, the emergency rooms just started filling. Uh, patients were in the corridor. Um, I remember walking down one of the corridors past the intensive care units and there are four intensive care units at this hospital and uh, one of the nurses had put on a, a sheet um, welcome to COVID land and like written it in like lipstick on, it was like some, you know, post-apocalyptic, you know, <laughs> and, and it was like, wow, the world's changed. And at that point in time, there were all of these contingency plans happening where there'd be like code red level four, like how will we run the hospital if the doctors are down, how will we run the hospital if the nurses are down. So policies, procedures and safety measures were changing like fortnightly as the risk got worse and worse. So that was happening in the hospital. Then in my private clinic, no one was coming. You know, like in my private clinic, it's different. In the public hospital, I was looking after strokes, epilepsy, acute problems. In the private clinic, often you're looking after things that are a bit slower, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, migraines. A lot of people just put that on hold. You know, then they just stay home. Uh, and so that went really quiet. Then turning the page to the other part of my life in, in, in the business world, the general practices, a lot of people stopped coming. So we, um, we, we had to close the doors. You know, if you remember, everybody was checking temperatures on the way in. It moved to telehealth. Um, the legislation was changing. I remember we, we needed webcams. We needed to trans, uh, like translate the whole practice into digital. And there were no webcams left at, at you know, Harvey Norman. Didn't matter where it was, JB Hi-Fi, 
Kogan, it didn't matter. We, we couldn't get anyone. I had a drive to Wollongong on a Sunday. There was this one vendor down there that had four left. I, I, I drove down with my, my wife and my daughter um, and we went and installed them Sunday night at our practices and so it was ready Monday morning uh, for all of the patients. And then we had to train everybody. So that was going on. And then as part of that, because we were capable and re- resourced, we then put in um, to assist the government with their, their response and that was a huge undertaking. So we employed something like 40 people in the space of six weeks. Um, I'm very grateful to the leaders in our team that meant that, you know, I could focus on what I needed to focus on at different levels, doctors and nurses. There was cleaning, security requirements, all sorts of things. So uh, we're setting websites up, phone lines. It was, it was controlled chaos, um, but, but eventually it offered a lot to the community and protected the community. Uh, so, yeah, it was just... I can't even, like looking back, I wouldn't want to go through that time again, uh, but we had to respond to the need and that's what it really came down to. And and as a leader in that scenario, you know, you, you're saying you're hiring 40 people in a very quick, quick time. That's hard in itself. Then there's chaos going on everybody e- everywhere. Your team are probably freaking out as everybody else was because I remember in the early kind of stages, particularly nobody knew what this thing was. And like, you did kind of think it was this big demonic thing that was, that was killing people. Nobody wanted to step outside their homes. Going into supermarkets was like the weirdest experience that I've ever experienced. As a leader in that sort of environment, how do you go about keeping things cool, keeping things calm and making sure that your business is still operating um, in the right fashion? Uh, It's very, very difficult. Um, And one thing I'll say is, is that when pressure builds and there's anxiety, when you're managing a team, uh, often the most anxious voice in the room is the one that dominates the room and you end up um, changing your rules and procedures for the worst case scenario, the most anxious person in the room. So that's very different than entrepreneurship because often what you're doing is you're taking measured risks and optimism matters. So you need to be like, look, 2% chance that'll happen. 98% 98% chance it won't. Let's play the odds. Let's back this and go that direction. Not the same in a pandemic in healthcare. If there's a 2% chance something is going to happen and we're not even sure of whether that is the chance, it may be higher, it might be lower, but but a certain person uh, in the room that's educated is, is scared, quite frankly, that spreads. And then you need to take a position and you need to run with it and you need to then be able to change your mind as new information comes to light and keep everybody informed. So the short answer is very, very difficult. Um, and leadership really counts when you're in those situations. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's obviously a great lesson there and, and I've seen a lot of it myself, you know, with a number of different leaders, but I think that the lesson there is in leadership and as a leader, no matter what chaos is going on around you, your job is to absorb the pressure at the top and not relay it down to the rest of your team. Because if you relay it down to the rest of your team, everybody freaks out and then you've got a huge problem. Sure. So a great a great lesson in that. I'm curious just to stay on this point for, for a little bit longer. How, how bad was COVID in your opinion? Look, at its worst, it was extremely bad. So globally, when you looked at the numbers and, you know, you only have to look at New York as a specific example at its worst, uh, it, it was just horrifying. Um, the scenes from the hospitals, the statistics coming out, so there was a lot of, you know, and without getting into it too much because it's always going to be a controversial topic, um, there was a lot of, you know, is the data normalised? Are we looking at, you know, other illnesses? What is the real cause of death, et cetera, et cetera. But fundamentally, 
on the ground and statistically what was happening is hospitals were being overrun by illnesses that could not be managed in the community. Young people were dying at rates they, that we'd never seen before due to an illness we'd never treated before. And at its peak, it was terrifying. As time went on, certainly uh, as, the, you know, as the virus evolved, as it mutated, as vaccines started to take effect, a whole bunch of things occurred, it started to diminish. And so sometimes the panic was not proportional to the reality. But at a certain point in time, it was very, very bad. And we, don't, we, we just could not handle it again anytime soon. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that from a doctor's point of view, because as you say, you know, it's, con- it's controversial. People have their opinions, but hearing f- from someone who is at the forefront of it um, is interesting. Tell me about, I guess, how COVID impacted CU Health and, and I guess how you kind of transitioned into that in a post-COVID environment. So CU Health, um, this is it's just such an interesting story in retrospect because some things you plan and some things uh, just happen. And um, I guess, you know, we were in a situation where we're running general practices and general practices are the forefront um, they're the coalface of medicine in Australia. Their job is to deal with people on the front line that come in that don't go to the emergency department, but everything else goes to them. Huge variety of cases and problems every day, mental health, physical health and otherwise. Now, in our generation, it's really a generation of technology and um, there were so many thoughts on how do we use technology to improve access to good services? How do we use technology to make the working day of a doctor less exhausting, you know, so that they can give better care? How do we use technology to improve data connectivity so that people aren't having to repeat their difficult illness stories over and over again? There's all of these questions in healthcare. And healthcare is traditionally slow in adopting certain technologies for fear of data breaches Generally speaking, it's a conservative sector. However, um, we had this idea of translating very good general practice to the digital world. And what I mean by that is, a very, when I say very good general practice, a lot of people will never have experienced um, what it was like 30, 40 years ago. You had one family doctor, maybe there's a gel, jelly bean dispenser at the desk. They knew your parents, your grandparents, the kids. The trust was built up there. And you could tell them anything and it's something in medicine that we call continuity of care. And continuity of care is about having a continual relationship, therapeutic relationship with the provider so that person can genuinely care for you, both using the technical knowledge and that empathy and understanding of your context. One of the things that was important to us was to translate that spirit and that that whole domain to the digital world. We thought, could we? Because we were seeing so many transactional market-based services like next available, Dr. Calvin, you know what I mean? Like it was like, you just, what do you, like a pizza and that's not healthcare. That's a consumer focused. I want something next service, but it's certainly not understanding you, your life, your needs. And you may not even know what's right for you because it comes down to knowing about health and medicine to know what's right for you. So it's a conversation. You, You have to converse to reach the right point and transactional digital services will never achieve that. So we wanted to achieve that. The other thing we wanted to achieve was uh, connecting people with the right healthcare professionals to achieve their goals. What that means is if you say, look, I've got this pain or I want to plan a family, uh, lots of people are needed to make that happen. There might be psychology services are needed, dietitians might be needed, a GP might be needed. 
what we call, we call that multidisciplinary care in medicine, which is in business, you do it all the time. You need a lawyer and an accountant and you need lots of people to solve a business problem. In medicine and healthcare, it's the same. You need lots of different expertise to solve a healthcare problem. In the digital world, you can bring together all those expertise, centralize them, and then personalize that care for a person. So we wanted to do that as well. That was the vision. This is six months before the pandemic. So coming back to your question now. So we go, okay, yeah, cool. We can we knew how to we had an idea as to how to build the tech and the blueprint for it because we'd already developed a track record in healthcare. We had the credibility, I think, to start building the model, a proof of concept out. Uh, so that but then the pandemic hit. Now the pandemic meant everybody started doing telehealth. Like not 10%, it wasn't some weird thing on a Teams or Zoom call or something. People didn't even use Zoom or Teams much, uh, you know, back back then. But this made it, um, it accelerated the adop- adoption, including the adoption of that. There was legislation that went through that allowed for digital prescriptions to become a thing. So people get QR codes on their phone and everything went QR code crazy. But all this stuff happened and we didn't, obviously didn't plan for that. We were bold enough and maybe naive enough to think we could make it happen without the force of a pandemic. We, we had the vision to do it anyway, to convince people. But I, in hindsight, I don't know how many people we could have convinced at scale to come on this journey with us. But the pandemic certainly shifted the curve fast. So during the pandemic, we didn't give up on CU Health's vision. We just had to as well. And that was another thing. So some days I was like ordering wheelie bins, you know, talking to cleaners, um, setting up websites and phone lines, uh, recruitment documents, insurance documents. And then we were raising capital. I was sitting on a desk in a back room talking to people about this concept of building a virtual clinic that did this, this and this and this and how it would help people. And um, so we, we, so, you know, it was just one of those times where a lot of different factors came together. I think there's a few things in there that I want to kind of touch on a little bit further. I think the resourcefulness, you know, you're talking about, you know, I'll draw on an, an experience in, in, in my background where I kind of spoke about this a little bit on, on the podcast last week, but we, we were doing pop-up stores in a retail environment and there was, a, there was a big trend that was going on at that time and we had to get stock from China and we had to get it out to the stores as quick as possible because if we didn't, somebody else would, and that beat us to it. And I remember at the time we had, we had kind of a warehouse at the back of one of our stores and there were truckloads of stock coming in and it was, it was probably eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night. And the CEO, the founder of the company who, you know, this, this was a big company. We had 20 shops, we had 200 employees, you know, he's a successful guy. He was the one getting in the truck unloading the stock himself at 10 o'clock at night, you know, opening boxes, unloading the stock, putting them onto another truck so they could get to the stores. I think that resourcefulness is something that, you know, successful entrepreneurs need. And I think it's something that's not often seen from the outside looking in. Completely. Um, I agree with you. And, and, and to that extent, I think that's essential. Um, and I think that there's a lot of, and, and I'm fortunate because I deal with the establishment, so to speak, in that I'm, you know, I'm still, I still lecture at uni. I, I, I work with uh, the government. I work with the, you know, the, the large end of the private sector. Um, and, you know, when you're looking at the private equity and the investment banking world and so on, they're moving money and units around, right? And they're looking for yield and they're looking for multiples. 
when you drill down on a commodity or a value or a service or whatever it might be, someone is driving the creation of that value and to create something from nothing and, and I genuinely mean that, you know, um, it doesn't matter where you came, you, you've come from or what leg up you've got or whether you've got a loan from your parents. or it, it, That won't manifest as success unless you've got that attitude, the founder CEO that you, you mentioned earlier. I mean, there's also that whole thing of, you, you know, you lead by example. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that's how you will things into existence. You know, and, and that's what it takes. And I think that, you know, people that are very driven and once they've made a decision and they've taken a risk, there's a responsibility because at that point you've taken a risk and your responsibility is to mitigate that risk for your employees and your shareholders by giving it everything. If you don't do that, you, you know, you lie awake thinking, have I done everything I can? Can I, it's okay to fail um, because you're going to learn. And a lot of the time when with these entrepreneurs, in this world, you're micro-failing all the time, but you're like learning, iterating every five minutes almost. So you don't even notice you're failing. It's just part of the way it is. But I think at a bigger level, at the when you look at it from a bird's eye view on your life and the risks you take and the projects you undertake, the worst thing is thinking, oh, that didn't work out because I didn't show up. You know, so I think that's just part of the deal, really. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think I've been quite blessed to have great leaders. You know, I spoke about that that previous business and, and we saw the same thing with Dan, particularly in a, in, in a COVID environment when shit did hit the fan, he was the one in the trenches. He was the one every day showing up and, and leading the charge. And yeah, you're right. You know, you as the leader have to be the one who does that because otherwise you've failed everybody, everybody who's, who, who's supposed to be there for you. You're the one who's, who's kind of failed them and it's, it's all on your shoulders. Talking about things on your shoulders, you know, talking to you now and hearing you speak about all these different things. Are you someone who loves pressure? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a good question. I, I guess I'm not uncomfortable under pressure. Obviously I, I think it's more that, um, it's like, what's the root? I, I've thought about this a lot. Like what is the root driver? What's the core driver? And, and pressure is just a side effect, I think of a choice. So my, my choice is to not have regrets. And when I say not have regrets, I genuinely mean to, um, live out my time giving my potential, it's maximum shot. So if I, and for me, you know, I've got obviously technical expertise and academic expertise, but I'm also quite a creative person and I want to express that and be useful. Being useful is a really important thing to me. So like be, being of utility. So what I, what I create, I want it to actually tangibly improve something, not just have created a market for the sake of it. So all of those things matter. So that when it comes to pressure, I guess, that's my base. I've just described my base. And then so I make choices. And then what happens is, is as a result of that, I'm under pressure. Um, and that's just part of making a choice or having a vision and then going after it and then bringing other people on the journey. Now, sometimes I think I place pressure on myself, which Im- improves my accountability. Uh, you can be accountable to yourself or you can be accountable to others. I think the f- most fundamental one is being accountable to yourself. Um, and I think that's what makes people trust you and then they're you're accountable to them. They can feel that conviction. Uh, then you, you sort of in a situation where you're like, well, uh, if this doesn't happen, I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage. If this doesn't happen, I'm going to have to let that staff member go. If this, do- So you suddenly set up with all of these not great scenarios if you don't succeed. And that's a great driver. Uh, that's a great motivation 
uh, to push on. Now, I know that would freak a lot of people out. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you've got to understand your own capabilities. And sometimes I'm sure, like personally, I work within uh, and push my capabilities all the time. The hard thing is, as you go on in life, you're responsible for people who are very close to you. And you have to take them into account, particularly your family, because you can be very um, focused as an individual. But unless you can take everybody on a journey or at least protect and do your best, because you're not going to have you know, bad days, you're going to have bad years. Um, but you've got to be self-aware because then I think it'll be like a house of cards. No matter how determined you are, how much pressure you put on yourself, you can deliver in one domain, but if everything else falls over, it's like, what was it for? So uh, I think that, you know, altogether, um, yes, I think I, I, I welcome pressure, but uh, not for the sake of it. It's got to be with a means to an end. It's got to have an outcome. Yeah, no, very, very well put. I want to go back a little bit more now. I mean, you're a neurologist by trade. You don't just get that overnight, right? So medical school must have been quite the ordeal. How long were you in med- medical school for? And, and, and talk, talk us through that experience a little bit. Um, so, you know, in Australia, the, the main pathway through medicine is undergrad, postgrad, but either way, it's about six or seven years of uni. Um, I did a combined degree. I actually did medical science first um, in neuroscience. I always was interested in the brain. Uh, and hand on heart, like, I had zero um, interest in money when I was doing that. It was pure curiosity and intellectual curiosity with the goal of doing medicine. But what was driving me is this is super interesting. I'd love to contribute to this space, um, work with people and science to do something meaningful. That's it. And I, and I had not looked at business models or anything at that point in time. Um, so that was, that was good. And then medicine and I met amazing people. The great thing in medicine generally is even, I mean, I, I try to be as appropriate as I can on, on podcasts, I'm thinking, but even the person that you like, least like in the room in medicine is still there for the patient, right? So the outcome that they're trying to achieve is still to get a good outcome for somebody else, which is a really nice unifying common ground that you have with people. But I, I, I've met amazing people and medicine teaches you to think critically, focus, um, it's highly academically rigorous, as you know, and it's a little bit like the military in a sense that there's hierarchy. Um, I was, you know, lucky enough to get through medicine without too much difficulty. I made it through my specialty uh, pretty quickly. I want to say pretty quickly, it takes like 12 years, right? <laughs> so, so, so like, you know, from I think from finishing school to being a specialist, it was about 12, about 12 years. Um, and that includes studying, working full time and doing both. You do both concurrently a lot in medicine. So you, you, in the day you're seeing patients at night, you're studying, um, you know, it's just the way it is. And then I, and that's why I knew how hard it was for people. So I developed courses to help people get through that. That's where the first business uh, came from. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, it, it, you know, it's not, not easy, but there's a, there's a pathway for it. So the difference between that and business and entrepreneurship is, you have to create the pathway a lot of the time. And, you know, there are a lot of fundamentals in business, like the business fund, business fundamentals don't change, but there's moving goalposts all the time. The laws change, the technology changes, the way you employ people changes, employee expectations change fast. This stuff happens like almost annually. In medicine, it's slower. You, you gather evidence over decades, you build on it. There's a next step if you, you know, a good employee, you get the tick boxes, you move on. So it's much more predictable. Um, and so those two worlds are very different in my life. 
Yeah, and I want to I want to go a little bit further into this concept of you know technical versus entrepreneurial because I think when I meet someone like you, it's a very interesting marriage. You're obviously a very technical guy. You know, you've come from a technical background. You're a doctor. That is a technician. Being an entrepreneur, as you say, is is a very different thing. And there's not often environments where, you know, technical people are also entrepreneurs. And I've always said, you know, from from pretty much from my early days at Cub, whenever I've met somebody who's very technical and very, very entrepreneurial, those are the people that excite me the most. Were you always entrepreneurial in medical school or, or even be, beforehand? And and did you feel like throughout that journey, you know, whilst you were around others, did that give you a bit of an edge? Um, I think I always have been, but it wasn't like, that, that's not how it, that's not how I interpreted it. But if I look back, I was always interested in other stuff. So I'm, I'm not a, like a, a narrow minded person. I, I have a very uh, like broad open mindset. I meet people that are creative in music and in marketing and I've always been curious about people. Um, and I guess that's always been, also leadership's always been important. So in, in my background, in my family, I've been, you know, again, fortunate enough to have examples of leadership and hard work and we owned small businesses growing up. So I saw the, um, I saw the work ethic in that. So, and, and so I think that, you know, some, some genetics some social stuff there, I think fundamentally I wanted to be uh, very good technically at what I do, um, good to my patients um, and leadership is important in that I, I, I guess I've always had that nature of I'd prefer to fail on my own terms than on somebody else's and so often when uh, there were other leaders that I was amongst that maybe weren't the best leaders and I mean that in the, in the sense that, you know, they're in a position of authority but they're not leaders. We, we see that you know, and I could feel that. And I think for me, that was like, oh, it's not going to work for me. Like I, I need to be able to s navigate the path and set the path forward. And that was an instinct for me. So I think those things were all part of it. But entrepreneurially, it wasn't like I was like running a lemonade stand at uni and like, you know, going around and selling stethoscopes and uh, it, I, that, that kind of, that, that wasn't, it, it just, that evolved because it just, I guess it was in me. And at a certain point, uh, once I realized I had value and I could offer value, I worked out that I could, you know, charge for it essentially. And then there's that concept that comes up if when you can charge for value, but you can't scale yourself, that frustrated me in because, because uh, I was doing, as you say, technical work and I'm only able to create value and financial value when I'm one-on-one. -on -one. And there's only so many hours in the day. And one thing I knew is I did not want to make m more and more money from my patients. I didn't want to charge them a bit more and hike the fees up. That sounds ridiculous. Like to, I prefer to charge them less and just do really good medicine. Um, with that said, you know, you charge them what you, you're worth and your time. And we certainly see other professions that I don't think offer as much value as medicine, charge a ton of money and questionable what value some other prof professions provide. But for me, it was like, well, could I create something more um, useful, scalable that others could use. Uh, and that was something that dawned on me as well. And then I was, you start having good conversations with people and you learn. I want to dig into your thesis on, on modern day health. Obviously as, as time's gone on, you know, you spoke before about, you know, the traditional doctor with the lollies at the front and 
I think as time's going on, the, the general public seems to be getting more educated on health. I think social media, one of the positive sides of social media is that too. You've got a lot of kind of influences, you know, who are speaking a lot on health. You've got scientists, you've got doctors, you know, Andrew Huberman, guys like that. What are you seeing in the modern day health kind of environment and, and what's exciting you? Um, this is that's a great question and I, I'm excited to answer it because right now, even this year, I'm seeing trends in attitudes toward innovation in medicine that I've never seen before. So uh, medicine is an amazing sector in that we went from, you know, a couple hundred years ago having very little understanding about infectious diseases and sanitation and disease processes and life expectancy has, you know, almost doubled. You know, it's 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 crazy. And the, the fundamental reason for that is mainly good population health. So clean drinking water, accessible nutritional food, you know, antibiotics, fundamental stuff. So um, when people get too fancy about all oh, this, it's like, guys, like the, the key things here are just very, very good population health. But um, we're getting to a stage where we're moving into precise medicine where you can personalise medicine for a person so that it fits not only their social context but their biological makeup. Also information um, is coming through more and more and more on different diseases, all sorts of things. And as a doctor, years ago, you didn't have to learn so much. But now we've got to walk around with databases in our pocket. AI is changing the way information is collated and provided. As long as the inputs are good, which is one of the critical points here uh, in the AI world, uh, you know, it's only as good as the data it draws on, right? So in medicine, you've got to be 100% clear that it's using the right data and prioritizing it appropriately. But what I'm seeing is um, technology being used now across the board, uh, whether it's looking at radiology and interpreting x-rays and MRI scans and CT scans, you know, one way to do it is to, as a human eye, look for things. Another way to do it is to use technology, which reduces error rates. Now I'm seeing doctors understand that and accept it more and more, but also not be threatened by it because there's this sense of, hey, I'm, I've done all this training. The technology doesn't change the fact that you need a human being to interpret a lot of information in the context for the patient, sophisticated information. So we're going to move to us over quite a quick period now. It was very slow, but I think it's going to happen quite quickly now because there's also some government input and backing here to a place where medicine starts to catch up a little bit with other sectors like retail and finance and banking um, where technology, when you adopt it, the risk is much lower. If it fails, someone, you know, has charged the wrong interest rate, you can fix it up. It's not life and death. So it, it is a very exciting time, but it needs good governance. So what you need is you, uh, you need people that are trained in medicine, that have an interest in technology, that want to consult to Google and consult to, so that you've got the right expertise helping put it through the right filter. Otherwise you get a lot of noise and you don't know what's right and what's wrong. But it's a very exciting time. How far do you think AI is going to go in, in medicine? Are we going to have robots operating on us? Well, there already are. They're already out. So, so now um, remotely, so you can be operating on someone thousands of kilometres away in real time uh, using robotic surgery. Um, so this is, this, this is now available in certain major centres around the world. Um, there's, there's going to be an integration of very advanced robotic 
technology and artificial intelligence that helps interpret information. Even practically speaking, there are pilots going on around Australia at the moment at hospitals, which are under review, uh, where AI helps the junior doctors write the notes and discharge summaries at the end of a patient's admission in the hospital. Now, that's great because the AI can draw on all the data from that person's admission, put it together in a template, but then the doctor's responsibility is to review it and make sure it's okay. But what that means is the doctor can hopefully spend more time with the patients, looking after them. This is very simple practical things. And then there's very like augmented reality surgery and all these other areas which we're going to move into. Um, a, a big space that is important, which is always has always been undervalued, is prevention. Mm-hmm. It's funny, even in medicine, when you mention the word prevention, it's it's been created into almost a fluffy word, like, oh, prevention people. You know, and it, and but we know at population health level, the number one way to reduce hospital waiting times, to reduce the burden on the budget, is to prevent disease. But there there hasn't been an economic model that incentivizes prevention. So what you end up happening is having all these people that don't have as much expertise as doctors and healthcare professionals coming up with prevention stuff. Uh, so one thing we need to see is uh, more efficient models uh, and innovative models for prevention. Uh, coming through. And and part of what we're doing is in that space. Yeah. So I want to go a little bit more into that. I think obviously, you know, from our conversations, health in the workplace is what you're really attacking. Talk to me about why you think that's important and and what you're seeing in that space in general. And I guess how you guys are looking to attack that. So it's interesting because it's not actually health in the workplace. What it is, is uh, if if we rewind the clock back, um, our, our goal was to develop a very good platform for people to access high-quality healthcare, which matters to everybody. Like, I mean, if it was free, everybody would use it. Regionally, metro, the 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 next step and part of it, running a business. So there's lots of great ideas, but it should you, commercialization is what matters. Is it can it be sustainable? Can it be profitable? Can it look after and maintain a healthcare workforce? All that's, that's the hard bit. That's where a lot of people bail. They're like, yeah, <laughs> I like the virtual thing. They focus on the tech, tech, tech. But then it's like, can you take the doctors on the journey? Can you get stakeholder buy-in from the top? Is it evidence-based? So that conversation happened and we worked out that employers lose billions of dollars in Australia, circa $100 billion in Australia annually due to the health and well-being issues that their employees have. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is about one in two adult Australians have at least one chronic illness. It can be mental health, physical health. There's lots of women's health issues uh, through to pain, uh, pain complaints. And we know the huge burden that mental health has on people. And mental health, very, I'm being very specific here, mental health diagnoses. These are mental health diagnoses that are reversible or preventable. Um, but they impact people every day and they bring that to work every day, their families and their friends. It's something that's pervasive 24-7. Now, the current healthcare system in Australia is quite good. Like internationally speaking, we've got a great system. One of the problems with our system is it's a bit disconnected in that accessing services efficiently, connecting experts with the patients can be inefficient. There's a whole bunch of inefficiencies amongst a lot of good stuff. We've got great hospitals. So we have a, so one of the things we can do in Australia is how do you join the dots better? How do you bring it together more to make it more accessible for people? And who's going to pay for it? So the next step was say, okay, is there a business case here? 
if we go to an employer and we say, if we improve your employees' well-being, and first we need to define what that means, is that better for business or is it just like a gimmick? It's a, like that's the first question. When we started looking into the research for this, we're like, well, hang on, you've got, what have you got? You've got sick days. Okay, well, sick days, the CFOE already writes and you've got a number per year, you can accrue them. You don't have to pay them out when people are terminated or leave. It's annual leave that people worry about. Mm-hmm. But there's sick days that could be preventable and when someone great like you, Calvin, misses a day because you're sick, that could be a day that you could have got me in as a cub member. So keeping you on the ground, healthy, focused, capable, resilient is important. Can work contribute to that? Of course it can. How? Well, you need to have a good system. And that goes across everything. Migraine. Someone have a migraine every three months, three, three weeks, something like that. It impacts them at meetings. They can't focus. And then when you start looking at – now, this is where I became a HR expert because I had to – is that I started to understand things like retention, uh, workers' compensation, um, talent attraction, um, all, all of these things, employee value proposition. Why does an employee want to work for an organisation? Is it the pay? Is it the managers? Is it the culture? Is it the vision? Is it the loyalty aspect? Is it the brand? What is it? It comes down, when you, it boils down to a few simple things, but one of the fundamental things is employees want to feel valued by their employers and they and now – in 2023, coming 2024, it's going to be even bigger. Employees expect their employers to have some way of supporting their well-being, and that can be everything from the office space that they work in, through to having direct psychological um, counselling services. And so that whole world was one I didn't know about, you know, four or five years ago. But I deep dove in. I was like, this make there's something here. So CU Health. Whilst independently it can be directed to anybody, anybody could pay for it, we identify that businesses could get a return on investment if they invest in their employees' well-being with an evidence-based scalable service and that's why now we offer it to employers. It mitigates a lot of risk for them in, in the new world and it's tangible. Like it's, it's not, hey, have a cup of coffee, a gym membership. It's real stuff and, it's, it's, and because it's led by healthcare, um, you, you can provide a lot more credibility and reassurance around the outcomes we're going to get. And that's why CU Health is a business wellbeing solution. And so explain to me like at a very basic level exactly how it would work. So say I come to you tomorrow, you know, I've got a team of 10. Yep. I want to offer these services to my team. Yep. How does that work? Yeah. So I say, great. Um, now, if you want to offer it to them because you're just a good guy and, you know, you run good Christmas parties and you've got a coffee machine for them and you want to invest a bit in their well-being as well, that's fantastic. I don't have to say too much to you or just do it. And, and it, employers are investing somewhere between $100 and $400 per year per employee um, in their well-being. And you, that can be broken down into many ways. Um, some companies, as you know, pay for private health insurance or subsidise private health insurance for their employees. You know, um, there, there's many different uh, ways in which this is currently looked at. But with CU Health, practically speaking, you say, Pat, I've got 10 people. I say, fantastic. Um, how much do you want to invest in team? You say, okay, like 250 bucks, but it was two and a half grand for the year. Okay. What we do is we'll just, we, won't inv- we don't even invoice you the whole lot. We invoice you a fraction of that. And we say that's going all towards services that your employees can use in the platform. Then you say, here's the 10 email addresses for those employees. That goes to my onboarding team. There's a demo on a launch day. Everyone gets their link. They set up their profile. They're on the platform. We educate everyone on how to use it, how to get the most out of it. It might be that you want to improve your sleep. You've got no energy. You want to 
get a healthy weight, you want to plan to have a baby, whatever it is, we will do. We also actually offer some on-site services because sometimes we have to. Um, and that's the right thing for that business. So basically that's how it works. And throughout the year, um, the employees will use the service however they need and see fit. And what we do is we report back to you and we obviously don't divulge anything about specific healthcare matters. What we can say is, is 80% of your team are using the service. They're engaged with it. We're dealing with this whole raft of issues, mental health issues. Some people have pain issues. And you're like, oh, wow, I'm doing this for my team. And one thing you might say to us up front is, you know what? I want to be an employer of choice. I want to maintain my 10. I want them to be loyal. I don't want to be recruiting halfway through the year. I want to demonstrate I care and I want this to be part of that story. That helps us because then we become a business partner to you and it's such a win-win because it helps you have a stable workforce. They're loyal. They're grateful for the service. You're improving their health lifelong. These are lifelong things. They're not like they're, when they le- they're learning, they're acquiring knowledge and also getting services uh, delivered to them efficiently they can benefit from for their family life the rest of their life. So you're helping Australia's healthcare. You're helping your business. Um, it, it's just it's just good all round. And if that's what your goal is, then it means that we can we're partnering with your business. We're not just doing something for the people in it. And and so when we report back, one of the things we like to do is is understand from you how is it impacting your business. And for larger businesses where they've you know thousands of people, we can actually measure trends. Uh, on this stuff. And that's why we trademarked something and it sounds gimmicky, but I'm really proud of it. Um, it's uh, called Wellbeing Dividends. And we trademarked Wellbeing Dividends because it was a way of saying you invest in wellbeing, you get a return on investment. So at the beginning, people are like, you're sure, like whatever. And I want them to be cynical because that challenges us to be accountable and provide and demonstrate that. Another thing we did is we fought for a fringe benefit tax exemption. So there's no FBT on our services. And the reason there's not is because it's an evidence-based wellbeing prevention program for work. So why should you have to pay tax on something like that? Uh, so all of those things helped us and that's why we're in the space we're in. You've been a, you've been a doctor, right? You've, been, you've run practices. You've, you've been a, 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 neuro, a, a neurologist. You've done a lot of different things in business. You're now running a tech startup, right? That's a very different thing. Talk to me about the difference between running a tech startup and running the more traditional type businesses that you're, that you're used to. Um, so, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a knowledge gap that you've got to, and I, and I will never uh, be an absolute tech expert, but we, we've done um, stuff like, we, we, this isn't a small thing in that where we build the tech um, and, and we build the tech, we do some in-house stuff, but a lot of it we partner with tech um, other tech providers because it depends what we need at different times. Because at a fundamental level, we're actually a healthcare company. So the tech is secondary. The tech is a vehicle. It's a delivery tool. And so, so for example, if tech became the wrong way to get the outcome, I'd ditch the tech. Mm-hmm. Um, I would use beanbags, like whatever, whatever we're outcomes focused. So because we're healthcare led, I, like we run the healthcare team, we look at what technologies help us deliver continuity of care, multidisciplinary care, accessibility to everybody. So it's about what – and that's one of the problems I think with, a, with te- some tech startups is they focus too much on the tech and not on the solution or the outcome they're trying to deliver. You need to be able to pivot at any point in time and if the, if the how changes, then go with 
changing it. It's the outcome that matters. So uh, cybersecurity is super important. Data, you can imagine with us, we're B2B enterprise. We're dealing with large businesses. So cybersecurity is important. Data protection is important. Policies, procedures, all of that stuff. There's a tech side, then there's a healthcare side. So when you, what is it? What is different about the business fundamentals? Never change. Running a team and managing a team doesn't change. Human beings, although we've got a very high-performing team. What I mean by that is high expertise and a large uh, range of different backgrounds. So if you're running a pure manufacturing business or, or, or pure tech business, you're kind of not one type of person, but they've got similar backgrounds. So you can. But I've got to speak lots of languages. So it depends which group in the company I'm, I'm talking to. Um, so, you know, I think that the, the difference as well is, is this is more of a venture type business or a traditional business is, you know, you, you're going for a break even soon. Uh, so one of the difference, fundamental difference, when you're building a transnational, potentially global uh, health and wellbeing solution, um, you're working with investors. So I've got, you know, in, in CEO of a large investment group. Um, whereas the other businesses don't require that. So that's one of the other big differences. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's, that, that's a big difference. So, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty clear to me that you're involved in a huge amount of stuff. You're obviously taking in a huge amount of information. All these things that you're doing takes a lot of time. Mm. You've also got a family, you know, your father as well. How important is structure to you? How do you manage your time? And, and what does your routine look like? How do you fit this all in? Uh, I'm going to start off with humility and say, I don't know, to be honest with you, but then I'll describe what I do. Um, I often joke and friends know this, that, that I've got like a doppelganger or a time machine. And when the time machine breaks, I'm stuffed because I'm, I bank on it for, uh, so I, I think that, you know, obviously interpreting large amounts of information and then turning that into actions is something that I'm good at. So there's a skill set that I rely on and I rely on my efficiency in terms of understanding information and developing solutions um, a lot. If that breaks, we've got a problem. The next thing is, is people um, getting, you know, the right people around and focused on what really counts is so important because delegation is critical when you're growing. And so one way that I get so much done is by having the right people on the right base. It costs money, but it's a necessary thing if you're going to go somewhere. So I think part of managing your time is letting go of things that other people could do better than me and focus on uh, completely. And I'm fortunate to have those people. Um, but you're right. Like uh, it's not always like that because you go through the hard bits where you're doing everything. And, um, and so, you know, I think that having a family actually has brought a lot of discipline. You wake up at the same time with the kids, they, <laughs> they don't sleep in yet. I can't wait till they're at the sleep in stage. Um, but they don't and, and they're quite dependent. Um, and I'm fortunate, you know, my wife, um, is a very organized person as well and, needs me to be organized. So again, that's accountability um, to other people. So I think that accountability creates structure. Practically speaking, have a very good calendar. Everything's in my account. I've got like nine email addresses, you know, like it all feeds into one calendar. Um, delegation is critical. I think setting non-negotiables are really important in terms of your time. So if you want, you know, unless I'm away, I'm home at the same time all the time. There's blocks of the day where I'm off. Then 
there's blocks where I have to be back on, which is those after hours. So people working late into the night, I mean, as an entrepreneur, um, it doesn't matter, even you know, lawyers, doctors, people, it doesn't matter. Small business owners, right? They're doing the bookkeeping after hours, just hard work. If you're hard working, you're not working just nine to five. The goal is to eventually not have to do that. Um, I'm not addicted to it, but it's a requirement. So I think that th- there's no quick fix. I'm not, you know, I'll never say I wake up, I journal, I meditate, I eat like three blocks of ice, I do an ice bath. It's not the case. You know, in the real world, I've got potentially a sick kid the night before. And I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of in that I've gone all in on everything. So one thing, when you're looking at examples of people to follow, you've got to understand it's a package deal. So if you look at the business, you go, amazing, amazing business, but you look at their, the other parts of their life and you're like, oh, I won't take that bit, but I'll take that bit. It's kind of like a cafe menu where you, you – for me, I don't feel like I'm successful unless I am um, investing in all elements. And sometimes I drop the ball on one or the other and I've got to compensate. So I think because of that it's created structure and discipline because I'm accountable to others. So it's more philosophical than what's my day look like. If I showed you my calendar, people just blow people's mind because I'm doing prescriptions at some point. I'll, I'll be, you know – seeing patients and focused on that. I'll be running an education event. I'll be managing my team. I'll be going and giving a keynote at a HR conference. I'll be doing investor calls. I'm switching mindsets all the time. Um, and that's just inherent in me. Um, I don't get anxious that much, obviously, about those things. The things that worry me are my loved ones, you know, and, and whether they're okay type. Um, so, yeah, it's, and, and I think, you know, you've got to break – one of the things that people, I think, find hard to do is – is take complex things and break them into small parts and deal with them one at a time, which is something that I do all the time. I think a lot of people, what they do is they take simple things and they make them complicated, you know, and that creates a lot of unnecessary work. So it's, it's a lot of things really. Well, I think that's a beautiful note to end off on. Uh, to all our listeners, if you want to know a little bit more about Pat, it's cub.club slash podcast. Uh, you'll find more information on Pat and what, what he's doing at CU Health. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. You're, you're a very, very impressive person and, and a great bloke as well. I've enjoyed getting to know you um, in, in the time that we've known each other. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to hopefully many more good times together. Thank you, Calvin. Thanks for your time.